Hey, good morning, church. Missed you guys last week. Glad to be home. New year. Uh, New sermon series we're starting today. Uh, We're beginning six weeks through the New Testament book of 2 Timothy, and we are calling it Finish the Race, Making Your Life Count in the Trials. Uh, My name is Travis. I serve as senior pastor here. Privileged to do so. Um, Why the book of 2 Timothy? Uh, Because after careful thought, uh, deep prayer, and uh, cautious deliberation, we have determined that 2 Timothy follows 1 Timothy, <laughs> which we studied this fall. So actually, there's, uh, there's a couple other reasons um, besides that. Eric, if you could bring me down just a, a touch um, so I don't make my ears bleed. Uh, so this, this letter, uh, it has two or uh, three themes that are, are woven throughout that hopefully we're going to um, accurately bring out as we move through the weeks. Um, here at the end of his life, it's an experienced pastor. If you don't know your Bible, this is a man named Paul. He's an experienced pastor. He's writing to a young pastor. His name is Timothy, and he's very much passing the baton of ministry to Timothy. And so baked into this letter, uh, you will find is this focus on next ministry, which we've determined here at MCC is quite relevant for us, um, as evidenced by the parade of children who exit the sanctuary um, each Sunday during the services. Uh, a second theme within 2 Timothy is the, that of perseverance. Um, what, what, what theological framework should the Christian be living out of in times of suffering and heartache? How do we make our lives count in the trials. So next generation ministry, perseverance and suffering, and then finally, uh, living for eternity. How can Christ followers, how can we, brothers and sisters, push back a little bit against a culture that tells us over and over, instant gratification is always just a mouse click away? How do we push back against that a little bit and begin as a church to take the long view, the eternal view on things. So next generation ministry, perseverance and suffering, and building an eternal perspective. Those are the major themes in 2 Timothy, and really nearly all three of them are uh, unpacked a little bit in this very first chapter of the book. Uh, So if you haven't opened already, 2 Timothy chapter 1, if you're using the Black Bibles, you'll find this on page 995. And while you're turning to that, um, here's a quick thought exercise from a a psychologist named Jonathan Haidt. I want you to imagine that you are handed a script for your newborn child's life. In fact, even a little better than that, you're handed a script and you're handed an eraser. And you're given five or ten minutes to just kind of delete anything in your child's life that you don't want there. So you read in this script that your, your daughter, she's going to be born, she's going to begin to grow, and she's a healthy kid pretty much her whole life. She's pretty healthy. But she is going to struggle with a learning disability in grade school, and that's going to be rough because where some of her friends have no problem at all learning to read, um, it's going to be really arduous for her. And then you read on in the script, and it's lays it out that in high school she's going to have a great circle of friends around her, but one of them is going to lose a battle to leukemia along the way. 
And then she's going to get into one of her preferred colleges, and she'll do well there. But in her second or third year, she's going to lose a leg because she's in a terrible car accident. And that's going to lead to a difficult depression. And then she'll continue to, to grow, and she'll get a really good job, and she'll get married. But then in an economic downturn, um, she'll get laid off, and that'll precipitate some really rocky times in that marriage. Anyway, you get, you get the idea, right? With, with a, armed with the, the script of your child's life in advance and an eraser, what would you erase? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't any parent, or for those of you who, who've kind of taken your kids through and up to adulthood, you're already thinking about, wouldn't any parent want to erase the things that cause the most pain to our child. But even if we could, would it mean that we should? What would, if we could, what would that mean for the long view? For what God's doing up to and through eternity? All of that, of course, is just pretend because God doesn't give us a backspace key. He doesn't let us just kind of edit out the stuff we don't like. What does he give us? Second Timothy chapter 1 is what he gives us. Beginning at verse 1, hear now the very word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day as I remember your tears I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know who I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. 
But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Thus ends the reading of God's word. So this second letter to Timothy, and we just read almost 25% of it in that one chapter. So I want you to understand that this is Paul's uh, swan song. Because if you remember from our series in Acts, it was a little while ago now, we left Paul at the end of Acts, he's imprisoned, right? And so our best understanding is that he did not die at that point, but he was released from prison in Rome. He then went on a fourth missionary journey. You remember the book of Acts covers three missionary journeys. He went on a fourth missionary journey, probably made it as far as Spain, and now he's imprisoned in Rome a second time. And so he writes uh, these uh, letters to pastors. We call them the pastoral epistles. So he writes a letter to Timothy, then he writes a letter to Titus, then he writes a second letter to Timothy, and then he's going to be executed for his faith. In fact, if you stick a finger where we are and flip forward just a couple pages to the end of the book in chapter 4, and then drop your gaze down to verse 6. Chapter 4, verse 6. So Paul writes, this is in the final chapter, he says in verse six, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. That's Old Testament imagery there. And the time of my departure has come. And the word that's used there is analusis. It's the kind of word that is used um, of unyoking the oxen at the end of the day, uh, of weighing anchor, of uh, striking camp. It's kind of an ordinary word, actually. There's nothing fretful in Paul's tone here. And then he goes on. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And Paul's saying, Timothy, I've finished my race. I want you to be sure that you finish yours. And by extension, that all of us here, that we would finish ours. See, as you flip back, to chapter one in the text this morning, understand that this letter, it wasn't written to be a private letter that we somehow got our hands on and it got incorporated into the canon of scripture. This letter, it was meant to be a public letter. It was addressed to Timothy, obviously, but it was meant for public distribution. We're supposed to like read over Timothy's shoulder, as it were. Um, if you look uh, right from the get-go, chapter one, Paul restates his apostolic credentials. In verse one, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And if you're Timothy and you're reading that from your spiritual father, you're thinking, gosh, why so formal, <laughs> Paul? This would be like me writing to my 13-year-old. Dear Elena, this is your father, the pastor of Medway Community Church. <laughs> You think, well, this is kind of a funny thing to say to your daughter. Well, it would be, unless I intend that letter not just for my daughter, but also for public distribution in some way. And indeed, that's exactly how this letter is intended. Paul's writing to Timothy plus people that he's never going to even meet because he's writing from here. It's called the Marmotine Prison. 
Um, a few of you who have been to Rome, you might have taken one of those tourist trips on the underground trails and the caverns. Um, and this is the location, purportedly, anyway, at least by tradition, where Paul was chained. Uh, this is his cell, by tradition. Unsanitary conditions, cold, lonely. Uh, we're in the mid-60s. AD, that's the spot on the timeline here. Nero has burned Rome and he's blamed the Christians, right? You remember that from your history? And then Paul kind of gets caught up in all of that. But it's not Emperor Nero that's at the forefront of his mind. If you look at verse 8, he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. And I love that. That while Paul is literally in chains, he says, hey, I'm not Nero's prisoner. I'm the Lord's. The Lord has me here for a purpose. We think, if Paul had been handed an advanced script of his life, don't you think he might have just erased these prison portions? But he wasn't, so he doesn't. Instead, he's a guy who leverages his suffering for the kingdom. Second half of verse 8 says, share in suffering for the gospel. And then again in verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Folks, when it comes to our heartache, heaven only knows the long view, eternal perspective, Right? To, to view reality through the lens of Scripture means that as a Christian matures, okay, as we grow up, and as we grow up in our faith, more and more for the Christian whose life is informed by the Bible, our view is going to be telescopic. It's going to be more and more out over the horizon, beyond what we can see, which means that all of life then, from serving in minus 47 degrees in the parking team, to teaching our kids in kids' uh, church, to uh, serving on the coffee prep team, to suffering quietly with what may come in our lives. All of it then is understood in the context of the long view. In fact, much of our service will be laying a groundwork for things that we're never going to be able to even enjoy. For instance, aren't we grateful for the faithful instruction of Timothy's grandmother Lois, verse 5, and his mother Eunice, also verse 5. These godly women who did the hard work of memorizing scripture and, and bedtime prayers and teaching the Bible stories and, and going to between mom's panels at 7 p.m. on Thursday night in Fellowship Hall because they want to learn about how can I help my child find an identity and an image that's rooted in Christ, not everything else. And then when Timothy became a teenager, his grandma and his mom, they said, hey, I hear what you're saying, Timothy. I don't want to go to church, but you know what? We're not going to relinquish our parental duties to a 14-year-old. We're going to actually say to you, son, as long as you live in our home, you're going to attend our church. 
And we're going to say it because we love you. Listen, moms, dads, a little bit of a digression here, not a big one. Listen, you cannot make your children listen to biblical instruction, okay? In, in case you thought you could, you can't. So just take that burden off of yourself. You cannot make your children listen to biblical instruction. You absolutely can require them to be in a pew beside you where they have opportunity to hear biblical instruction when they are so desirous to do it and when God will open their heart for it. You know, in the past, I was a youth pastor. In the present, I'm friends with a pretty good one. And both Adam and I will tell you the same thing. If you wait, mom and dad, until your child's life choices make it blazingly obvious that they really now need Christian community, it is too late, baby, baby, it's too late. Do not try and make that happen when your kid's in 10th, 11th, 12th grade and beyond and are kicking against the gospel. Do it when they're young. Train them when they're young, just like these precious women apparently did. We, we heed their example of, of Eunice and Lois who took the long view. Their faith became Timothy's faith, and now Paul is exhorting Timothy, who's a young pastor of this church in Ephesus, to never be ashamed of the gospel. Do not shrink from suffering, but persevere with eternity in your mind. This is not only relevant for pastors, but it is particularly so, I think. A Scotsman back in 1857, he wrote a hymn for his fellow ministers titled, Courage, Brother, Do Not Stumble. Some will hate thee, (laughs) some will love thee, some will flatter, some will slight. Cease from man and look above thee. Trust in God and do the right. I think that that little hymn which has a nice, it just sounds nice. It also is true and is really an an apt summary of this chapter because heaven only knows the long view. Now, as I was thinking through that, man, I I hope I don't sound like a grumpy old man up here, but at, at the risk of sounding like a grumpy old man, my goodness, do you realize that some of the buildings, far too many of the buildings in our region that purport to be Christian churches, you, you go in and what you hear is this feel-good, instant gratification Christianity that is nothing but superficial pablum. I get it. I wasn't born yesterday. I understand it. A therapeutic world wants a therapeutic gospel, and that will bring the people in. So we... We share some encouraging thoughts and then we send you out on your way. I'm so glad you came. I hope you leave feeling fulfilled. Be blessed. Folks, that's Oprah Winfrey. That's not the gospel. It's Dr. Phil. The gospel is verse 9 that God saved us and he called us to a holy calling, not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This is the the gospel message, that we did not love God, but he loved us. And he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. 
And even as I say that, I mean, it's so counterintuitive to even, even use a multisyllabic word like propitiation on a freezing cold Sunday morning. But it's the right word. It means it's synonymous with atonement, um, but it carries with it the, the idea of um, Christ absorbing the wrath of God that was rightly meted out for us for sin. And it's understanding in our heartache and in our suffering that real faith, okay, the real gospel, it rests on that kind of atonement that Jesus went through and endured for us. This is the kind of gospel and the kind of faith that allows us to say, I am not ashamed, verse 12, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. For those of us who grew up in the church, does that verse ring a bell at all for you? Does that that sound like something you should turn into a hymn, perhaps, and sing it out? You know, it has its origins in the Civil War. There's a guy named Daniel Webster Whittle. And he lost an arm in battle. And he found himself lying in a field hospital, looking for something to read. And the hand that he had left fell upon a copy of the New Testament. Not long after, an orderly saw him holding a Bible and asked if he would pray with a dying soldier who was bedded nearby. Except Whittle hardly knew a darn thing at this point. (laughs) But he heeded her request. He knelt beside the bedside of this dying soldier, and he prayed first that God would forgive his own sins, and then God would forgive the sins of the soldier. And I guess something in the, the, the grasping of the fingers, the twisting of the hands, it left him convinced as he left that hospital that he would one day see that soldier again in glory. And then he wrote based upon this text that's sitting open on your laps, the stanzas that many of us grew up singing. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known. Next verse. I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart. Next verse. I know not when my Lord may come at night or noonday fair. You can hear the progression there, right? I know not why, how, when, but I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. That's verse 12, where Paul is reminding Timothy, Timothy, heaven only knows the long view. And so we ask here at MCC, are we living in light of that day that's referenced? I mean, Timothy served in a context where novelty was in high demand and mythology often supplanted biblical theology, and it's no different at all for us today. The great challenge for the 21st century New England church is not onslaught from a world opposed to biblical truth. Begg says as daunting as that is, and it is, the church has always thrived in that environment. Even a superficial understanding of church history will bear that out. The, the real threat to Medway Community Church in the year 2018 is going to be decline from within. In fact, I'm so convinced that that's true. I'm going to say it a second time. The real threat to Medway Community Church in the year 2018 and in the years to come is going to be decline from within. Because we live in an American culture that is increasingly confused. That is true. 
But more problematic is an American church that is increasingly compromised. Man-centered pulpits responding to consumer-oriented congregations that want it now. We want to feel good now. We want it fixed now. We want to be happy now. But heaven only knows the long view. Hear these words of Paul that we read here to Timothy while Paul is in chains and a prisoner of the Lord. He's saying, Timothy, I'm in a prison cell and many of my friends have they've abandoned me flat out. In fact, if I'd been given an advanced script on my life, I think I might have erased these parts. I would have wanted to. And very soon, these soldiers are going to separate my head from my shoulders. And I'm not particularly looking forward to that either. But Timothy, I want you to know, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. There is a crown of glory awaiting me. And there's one for you too. See, if you're brand new to church today, or you're brand new to the Bible, you chose a good day to come, particularly if you're hurting in some way. Because this passage reminds us that any theology that's biblical theology affirms it's the end of the story that gives significance to the journey. Those aren't my words, but they're really good words. Any theology that's biblical theology will affirm that it's the end of the story that gives significance to the journey. Scripture then, it does not negate the reality of suffering, but it reframes our suffering in light of Christ's suffering. This girl here, her name is Dana. I had her for three years in youth group. And she was a piece of work. (laughs) Oh man, Uh, pretty smart, super fun. I'm convinced every youth group probably has a Dana. Um, Because she was the kid, you know, if I could get her on my side, I'd have all the kids on my side. But oh, she was a tough one. Um, And she was not the least bit interested in living a godly life. So starting in high school, and then really when she went off to college, uh, she made so many bad choices. <laughs> and if her parents had an advanced script of her life, I am sure there's a good bit of that that they would have just struck through, struck through, struck through. But instead, God used all that. And he transformed her heart. And then with that, he transformed Her husband's heart. About a month ago, Dana and her husband, they joined a new church. They were baptized. And they publicly shared the most beautiful testimony about God's faithfulness in the midst of our facelessness. God has purpose even in our suffering and our bad choices and our heartache because heaven only knows the long view. And then last week, while we were in Pittsburgh, uh, Dana reached out to Sarah and I regarding another girl in our youth group. 
Mindy, she was an awesome kid. Um, she's one of our student leaders. Uh, she, she was and she is a quality girl who just loved Jesus and to my knowledge never strayed from the faith that her parents had handed down to her. And she has three little kids, including this uh, precious little eight-month-old named Griffin. And on uh, Christmas Eve, he had a bad ear infection. On Christmas Day, they laid him down for a nap, and he never woke up. So loss beyond heart-wrenching. And I, I, I would do almost anything, almost anything, to be able to edit this out of her and her husband's script. And yet she's clinging to the purposes of God that are good and are beautiful. She's made exactly one post on Facebook since her son died. Quote, Our hearts are broken, but we have hope because of Christ. And then she put in parentheses John 14, 1 through 4, which if you look it up is a promise of eternity. Heaven only knows the long view. I mean, we sang it a little bit earlier, didn't we? Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain. That has got to be one of the best lines in any hymn. Um, The rainbow, if you don't know your Bible, and that Old Testament symbol of God's promises. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that mourn shall tearless be. And then we come to this table, right? And on the first Sunday of every month, it's another reminder that God's purposes in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of Christ's suffering, they stand. And God's purpose is good. And it brings good. Because heaven always takes the long view. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my shame.